thank you for your attendance and welcome to tonight's very important talk on housing affordability. My name's Angelo Terekis and I'm the chair of the Cities Leadership Institute. Uh, my role is to introduce Ed Blakey, who I know a lot of you would, would know Ed, um, and Ed will introduce our special guest, visiting professor Richard Pizer, who will give us a talk on his experiences in America and throughout the world about affordability. Um, tonight we have a, a fairly uh, packed talk. We are going to have a few people that will be talking on the panel as well and discussing issues around afford affordability in Sydney. And Catherine O'Regan will be the facilitator for the panel discussion. And on the panel, we will have some important people from Sydney. We have Robert Ferullo, uh, Mayor Betts, and also Dr. Kate. After the panellists' uh, discussion, there will be uh, time for questions from the audience. Affordability is the hot topic of um, of everybody in Australia from the federal, state and local level. As the Mayor of one of the cities in Sydney, affordability has been discussed at a local le level for over 10, 15 years. Um, affordability in the, in the West especially, where families have grown to a size where the kids have had to move out but can't buy in the suburbs or have had to move out into the suburbs and elsewhere where they can afford to purchase or rent properties. Just quickly, uh, the City's Leadership Institute um, is, a, is a new entity and it was born from the Future Cities that was part of the American Studies Centre. City Leadership Institute is still under the umbrella of the University of Sydney and it's a new entity and as many of you know that Ed Blakey, uh, well-renowned planner and uh, respected professor in that field, um, is going to start a new discussion and a new dialogue and will be out there discussing the issues of planning and better cities planning and hopefully will be engaging with many of you in this room and others at all state, federal and local government levels. Um, I'd like to also thank um, Sydney Ideas for the opportunity to, to uh, be here this afternoon and to open up to, to you to discuss this important issue. I'd like to now ask Professor Ed Blakey to introduce our visiting Professor Richard Pizer. Ed, would you like to come up please? Um, I'm sure there are going to be a few more people uh, coming in uh, because this is a very important topic. The people who aren't here are living so far away uh, that it's going to take them a while to get here. <laughs> um, there really hasn't been a time uh, when housing affordability was not on the discussion. But some time ago, when I was young, uh, and my my uh, Children remind me that the dinosaurs were also young at that time. Um, but after the Second World War, in this country and the United States, we released land, 
We made housing packages so that the returned soldiers would have a place to live. We didn't do that just for a place to live. We did it because people understood at that time that when you provide people with homes, you give them a sense that they have a horizon, a place to go, a place where they can actually build a family, build a job, and build a nation. So we share those things, uh, United States and Australia, as being the, among the first to recognize these things. And through the entire spectrum, you can look out here on the horizon and you see large buildings that were built for social housing, and throughout the United States the same. These ideas have changed over time, but the need has not. And it's even more pressing today because the new economy is not based in factories. It's based in heads. And if we don't get the heads in the right places, they don't perform. And it's absolutely necessary in this country that we reach that innovation place where the people who are in this room, many of the young people here, are not looking for jobs but creating them. So this is essential. The affordability is not something we can hope for, and if it doesn't work, we can move on. We cannot. The City Leadership Institute has selected this topic as an opening topic because all of our topics are going to be about building a strong, vital, and important economy using the fabric of locality, the cities, the urban systems. And over the year, we're going to have more sessions like this with people coming from overseas. We're going to have several sessions on what we're calling the digital city, the smart city, however you want to wrap that. We're going to have several sessions on that. We're going to have a session on the 30-minute city. Right now, it's 30 minutes to find anything. So at some point, we have to have cities within 30 minutes. You can actually do the kinds of things you need without jumping in an automobile. We're going to have a session on resilience. When I say sessions, these are week-long. Part of every visitor we bring here, we have a master class, and Rick gave one of those today. We have a series of talks with civic leaders during the week. We have civic leaders and technicians during the week so that everyone in the system can start speaking the same language. But there's no more important language than affordability. We're going to take two uh, experiences overseas this year, uh, one to Austin, Texas, uh, and then to Las Vegas, and then to Silicon Valley, all about the digital city. Then to Elon Musk place in Las Vegas. And Austin, Texas is one of the best cities in the United States. And there they're having the international meetings of smart cities. And some of our cities will be performing there. And we're going to Europe uh, later on in November uh, to look at building great places to Sweden, to Holland, to Spain, and to England. But we go to these places as real exchanges. What we know, what they know, we try to put together and bring it back home to start new practices. And along the way, we'll be offering a new program to assist civic leaders and urban specialists 
get the skills they need to go head-to-head with anybody in any industry. So today we started with the development industry, and we're moving to the other industries, finance and so forth, because a city leader should not be crippled by not knowing what the other party's talking about or being able to go eye-to-eye with them and champion their cause. So that's what we're going to be about. To get this started, I brought one of my friends over from the United States, from Harvard University. We work together at the University of Southern California, and Rick Pizer is a person who's passionate about the real estate development process. He's a trustee of the Urban Lands Institute in the United States, which is a very prestigious position. Only very few people get that. And the Land Institute is a progressive organization trying to build better cities and better spaces across the country, leaders in sustainability and the like. He has been 30 years going around the world working on the issues of development. Developing great houses makes no difference if you don't have great neighborhoods. And that makes no difference if you don't have great jobs. So the development process is not what we think of it as, as someone slapping up an apartment building and then running away with the cash. It is creating communities. And so that's what Rick is an expert on. The financing of that, the organization of that, that's what makes the difference. So we asked him to come talk to us a little bit about how he's done it, primarily in the United States, but what he knows about the rest of the world. Without further ado, Rick Pizer. While Rick is um, getting ready, I did forget to mention on your smartphones, get ready and start Twittering as much as you can. We want as many people to know about tonight and also about what's going on about affordability. Thanks. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd like to ask how many of you are actually in uh, real estate or planning right now, if you raise your hand. Oh, almost everybody. How many of you are on the real estate side? Raise your hand. How many of you are on the planning side? Super. Well, in my view, uh, everybody in real estate needs to know virtually everything that planners know about, and everybody in planning needs to know everything that real estate people know about. I think the skill set is crucial on both sides. <clears throat> so I put together a uh, um, my assumption is that not everybody knows a whole lot about uh, what we mean by affordable housing. So I'm going to give 15 minutes of primer on affordable housing and then show some pretty pictures of what it means on the ground. So when we talk about affordable housing, uh, there are two sides to it. There's a supply-side subsidies and demand-side subsidies. Now I'll explain what we mean. Um, With supply-side subsidies, these have to do with anything that lowers the cost of production. So, uh, and I'm thinking mainly from the U.S., uh, uh, perspective, uh, until uh, Ronald Reagan took office in 1980, um, virtually all of the subsidies for affordable housing were on the supply side. These were primarily in the form of below-market interest rate loans, um, uh, two main programs put out by the FHA that essentially provided 1% mortgages to developers of affordable housing who promised to maintain rents at uh, levels that were affordable to people who made 30% of the market rate. 
um, I'm sorry, uh, it was affordable to people whose incomes uh, were uh, uh, where if they spent 30% of their income on their rent, uh, they could afford it uh, based on the median income for the area. So um, uh, other forms besides the below interest rate mortgages, we had housing revenue bonds and more recently tax credits. So uh, tax credits are the current major program on the supply side uh, where you um, are able to write off uh, if you uh, a developer would, uh, 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 he would, uh, for uh, designated projects, he can sell the tax credits to investors and the investors will pay a lot of money for those tax credits because they get a one-to-one -one write off against uh, their taxes. So if you get a dollar of tax credits, you literally can lower your tax payments by a dollar. <clears throat> now, starting with Reagan, there was a fundamental shift in the subsidy of affordable housing from the supply side to the demand side. Uh, the, uh, uh, there was great worry about the concentration of poverty in certain areas. And so uh, uh, the programs that were created were voucher programs that uh, tenants were uh, qualifying tenants whose incomes were too low to afford market rents. They could get a housing voucher that they could take to any project in the metropolitan area that would accept them. And so uh, this had the benefit of moving people out of the areas of concentrated poverty into nicer housing in the suburbs, but no new affordable housing got built. So, uh, once the supply side programs disappeared, there was no support for the FHA subsidized interest programs. Tax credits hadn't, tax credit programs had not made the scene yet. So uh, the supply of new affordable housing disappeared. It took several years for that to become a crisis. But finally, when it did, there was recognition that some support on the supply side was needed. <clears throat> now, I, I differentiate between public housing, similar to the council housing that you have here in Australia, and uh, developer-based uh, approaches where developers are able to build the housing and uh, receive certain subsidies that make it uh, possible and, in fact, mandate that they provide units at, uh, at rates that are affordable uh, to people uh, whose incomes are below the median income. <clears throat> now, just some fundamental principles of affordable housing. If it were economic, the market would produce it. Because the market does not produce it in certain areas, this isn't true. If you go to the United States, you can actually find affordable housing in most states in the country that are not on the coast. What you hear about are the very desirable cities on the coast, and much to my amazement, uh, Sydney actually is even more expensive than our most expensive markets in San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and it's on a par with New York City. So if it were economic, the market would produce it. By economic, I mean if there was money to be made as a developer, then they would build it. Now, you might say uh, developers make too much money. That's a terrible thing. But uh, if we are in a free market economy, if you can't make money at it, then it doesn't happen. Well, you can't for affordable housing in many markets because the rents are simply too low to support the amount of the investment. Uh, 
And in those markets, some form of subsidy or adjustment is needed. Affordable housing is not just a social good, it's an economic good for the city. That is, it's in everyone's interest to have a balance of affordable housing. It's very hard to bring down the price level across the board. So one of the popular solutions, uh, uh, especially by developers, if you want more affordable housing, simply increase the allowable densities. Increase the supply of housing and prices will fall. It is true that in the long run, if you want to bring housing prices down, the only way to do it is to increase the supply. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen quickly, and uh, it turns out to, to be much harder than most people think to increase the supply of housing, except on the fringes of metropolitan areas, uh, which in Sydney, I gather, are at least an hour away. Quick observation. Uh, uh, Sydney, uh, one of the problems in Sydney is that you have the highest concentrated of, um, concentration of employment in the central part of the city than any other major metropolitan area in the world. 38% of uh, your employment is in uh, the CBD and in immediate areas. Contrast that to Los Angeles, where only 6% is downtown. So uh, one reason why commuting times are actually shorter in Los Angeles than here is because of that dispersed employment. So one of the things that will help affordability here is to get more jobs uh, outside of the center of the city. <clears throat> so I've said the surest way to get more affordable housing is by increasingly in increasing the supply. <clears throat> So we need subsidy programs. Uh, some are more efficient than others. Um, <clears throat> in the interest of time, uh, uh, tax credits actually got approved in the United States mainly because Congress did not want to increase the subsidies to build housing. Tax credits were okay because uh, they could generate affordable housing without actually subsidizing the housing. Now, it's ironic, what tax credits are, are lost taxes. So it's, it's tax revenue not actually paid. Congress is more willing to accept that than to increase the subsidies available for affordable housing because it was off balance sheet. That's simply the politics of the situation. So what works? On the supply side, uh, probably the cheapest way to, uh, and the, the most effective way to provide affordable housing is uh, to take government-owned land and make it available for uh, affordable housing. And uh, where governments have land that they control, uh, uh, making that available, I think, is the uh, best possible way to go about it. A uh, second way is to lower the cost of entitlements. Uh, this is both in terms of the fees for entitlements and the time it takes to get entitlements. I was quite shocked when I learned that the average time it takes to get all your permits to build here uh, is four to five years. Now, I come from Texas, which is uh, probably one extreme, where um, when I was building houses at uh, the start of my career, um, I, if I couldn't get my building permit within two hours of when I walked into City Hall to ask for it, I'd get very upset. Uh, that same building permit in California would take me about uh, 
uh, two years if I'm lucky and could take four years if I'm not. A, a second supply-side uh, cure is on uh, density bonuses for affordable units. So offering developers uh, extra floor area ratio if they'll provide dedicated affordable units uh, does work. A third way we've seen in Massachusetts, which actually has the single most effective piece of legislation I've seen in the country to help generate affordable housing, is called the 40B Comprehensive Permit Act. And what it does is that it overrides zoning in any city that does not meet a 10% threshold of affordable units. So uh, in cities that don't meet that threshold, uh, developers can, well, they first go to the city, and if the city will not give them the zoning or, or give them the density to deliver affordable housing, they can go to the state zoning appeals board, and uh, the, the appeals board will look at the city, and if they don't meet the 10% requirement, they have a streamlined permitting process that basically overrides the local community zoning. This is critical because the places where you have the biggest affordability problem are typically wealthier communities that simply don't want affordable housing, and they zone it so that the lots are too big and you simply can't deliver uh, the affordable housing at a density that makes it workable. Now, you might say, well, uh, why, what keeps developers from putting uh, uh, 200 units per acre? Well, uh, over time, models have evolved for efficient, affordable housing, and if the developer is proposing that, and I'll show some examples later, then the state zoning board will override the local community. This has been our operation now for 40 years and has generated 56,000 units of affordable housing in Massachusetts. Um, now, those are some of the supply-side programs that work. On the demand side, uh, well, dealing with for-sale housing, there are really only two ways to uh, get down to make housing more affordable. One is by providing assistance on the down, for down payments, and the second is programs that reduce the mortgage payments. So some of the things that we see in, in the United States and the United Kingdom and Canada are things like shared appreciation mortgages. In fact, uh, when I went to Harvard, the university had a program where I could get a uh, loan from the university for $150,000. And so uh, I bought a house where that was about 20% of the cost. I don't pay any interest on that mortgage as long as I own the house. However, when I sell the house, the university, the university gets 20% of the appreciation. This actually works out to be a good deal for the university's endowment because housing is considered a preferred good. As people make more money, they spend more money on housing, which is the primary reason that housing goes up in value faster than uh, prices in general. So over time, the university will get an above uh, appreciate uh, the return they get from appreciation in housing will be higher than the inflation rate. Now, granted, Harvard makes more money than that on their endowment, but in order to attract faculty, they're uh, willing to uh, accept uh, this protects the endowment. It's at least hedged against inflation, and they also know it's low risk as long as uh, uh, we keep showing up and uh, getting paid by the university. Another important mechanism are considered soft second mortgages. So many states have programs 
especially geared to key employees like teachers, firemen, and policemen, where they can get assistance from the state or through nonprofit providers that gives them a second mortgage. It's considered a soft second mortgage because often you don't pay, uh, you don't have to pay interest currently. Um, when you sell the house, you do have to pay off the mortgage, often including interest, but uh, if for some reason the sale price of the house doesn't cover that, then uh, uh, the uh, borrower is not responsible. Another method is community land trusts, where a community land trust owns the land, leases it to uh, the homeowner, and um, the homeowner is uh, subject to certain restrictions when he sells it, but uh, uh, that uh, low um, ground rent is passed on to the next borrower and helps to keep prices low. Uh, that's a very quick overview of some of the programs on the supply side and the demand side. And now to show what some of these projects look like. I'm sure every planner and urban student recognizes this. This is a, a Le Corbusier's famous uh, image of garden uh, buildings in a garden. Unfortunately, this is the fundamental idea for almost all public housing throughout the world. And... It's a failed model because when you concentrate poor people in high-rise buildings and then typically don't maintain them at a standard that they need to, over time, well, this came to a head in St. Louis at a very famous project called Pruitt-Igo that you see here, which was dynamited and uh, torn to the ground in the late 1980s. This was the beginning of the end of that type of public housing. So uh, Chicago has had a very long history of uh, public housing. Uh, here are some of the old uh, public housing. <clears throat> uh, by the way, this is right in the shadow of downtown. So this is uh, about as well located as you can get. But it's been replaced by buildings like the one you see on the right. This is the before. After, you have these townhouses. Now, these are actually earmarked. This is part of the HOPE 6 program, which is the conversion of public housing to uh, uh, a typology that is uh, uh, much better for the, uh, 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 for the tenants. So you can see uh, it looks a lot better than the old housing. <clears throat> Um, so another prototype is uh, new urbanism. Uh, most of you will be familiar with Andres Duane. Uh, this is a community outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, one of the key things about uh, uh, new urbanist communities is it allows for more experimentation in the housing typology. This is a type I'd never seen before. It's actually a two over two. So... Uh, uh, each of these units, you have uh, two floors on the bottom, which is one unit, and then the staircase go, it takes you up immediately to the third floor. It's an inexpensive prototype to build and one way of delivering more affordable housing. Uh, <clears throat> this building on the left uh, has no parking. It was sort of a, a little out parcel. In most community zoning ordinances, you could never build that unit. It would just be a park or the land allocated to the lot next door. But uh, 
uh, in the, in the uh, uh, new urbanist planning, uh, you're allowed to take advantage of such spaces and to break some of the standard rules, such as two parking spaces uh, per unit. Some of the other housing uh, here. Now, now we go to Los Angeles. Uh, those of you who've landed at Los Angeles uh, International Airport, uh, if you look out the right window, you will see a wetlands area that was under development for about 30 years. So the typology I'm showing you now is the standard higher density typology for delivering uh, both market rate and affordable housing. Uh, this is the most, uh, this is the cheapest way to deliver it in places like Los Angeles, uh, where uh, 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 building is very expensive. So these are four-story uh, stick-built units, wood frame units, in this case over uh, one level of underground parking. Now, granted, the underground parking is very expensive. Well, it's kind of hard to see, actually. Uh, this actually is built up uh, about six feet. So uh, um, what's important here is that this parking has about four feet that is exposed to the air, and by not being wholly underground, that makes it a lot, a lot cheaper than if, for, if it were fully underground. Other examples in uh, Playa del, uh, del Rey, uh, or what you see here. Here's the master plan. I will say most of these units are not uh, particularly affordable, but it does show you what the prototype uh, for building is. Uh, recently, um, I'm on sabbatical right now, which is how I can be here during term, and uh, part of my sabbatical is being spent down at Yale. Uh, so uh, Yale has uh, these... Uh, um, old factories right on the outskirts. I believe this uh, uh, used to be a gun factory, actually. So this has been converted to a combination of uh, market housing and affordable housing. It was actually executed by Forest City, uh, one of the largest developers um, and also the developer of Stapleton uh, in Denver, for those of you who uh, follow master plan communities. Um, I actually uh, talked to somebody who was coming out of this and asking them, well, how was it to live here? And it was only a few blocks from uh, the Yale campus, and uh, they couldn't have uh, uh, been uh, more positive about uh, the environment that was created. Now, uh, uh, these are um, have taller floors because it's a converted factory, lots of light, uh, but 20% uh, of these units are affordable uh, and uh, uh, made available to uh, tenants uh, uh, with uh, below average incomes. Uh, now, th this is in Massachusetts. Um, uh, this, these are projects uh, on the Charles River. Uh, these are in Watertown, uh, in, uh, just outside of Boston. Uh, but the typology, again, in Boston is what's being built, both for market rate and affordable housing. This has uh, uh, parking uh, at the ground level and a structured parking lot on the inside, and this also is wood frame construction. So it's inexpensive to build. The importance of wood frame construction is that up to four stories you can build wood frame and uh, uh, you don't have to worry about the fire codes. Um, if you go higher than that, uh, you get into uh, 
uh, requirements for concrete and steel, which tends to raise the cost about 30% going up to eight stories. And if you want to go up to high rise, it doubles the cost. So one of the problems from a construction standpoint, you all want, you know, you think uh, high rise is a lot cheaper and it is on the land cost, but it uh, significantly increases both the construction cost and uh, the uh, cost of maintenance. So uh, this is a project, uh, again, it's 80% uh, market, 20% affordable. Now uh, let's go uh, to a place closer uh, to uh, Australia. Uh, for four years, I had an investment company in China. And uh, so what we're looking at is uh, uh, the economy housing that China is building. Uh, this is a project uh, on the Fifth Ring Road in Beijing. Uh, one of the ways that makes it cheaper, uh, this is the model of it. Uh, so uh, all of these are floor through units and they all face south. And uh, But uh, it really is uh, block after block of identical units and uh, that's one way to deliver more affordable housing. Now, the way China has done it, and they've done it quite effectively, is that, uh, well, it helps that the government owns all the land, and they've made that land available to economy developers who are allowed only a 3% margin, but the land is essentially given to them. They're required to build these units, uh, and uh, the units, thanks to inexpensive labor, uh, uh, in 2004, when we first went to China, they were building these units for about $25,000 a piece. Uh, even today, I think they can build them for about $60,000 a piece. Uh, Vincent Lowe, a major Hong Kong developer, is building the units we see here. Um, so now, one of the things in China, they deliver a shell unit. You may have wondered, how many of you have been to China recently? A few. <laughs> Well, when you drive in from Beijing or Shanghai Airport, you go past miles of apartments that are completely dark, and you wonder how, uh, uh, where are all the people? Well, the units are sold in a shell condition. The buyer actually then uh, needs to spend about $2,000 a square foot to finish them out. But many of these units have been sold to investors who simply just sit on them and don't finish them out. Anyway, uh, here we see uh, uh, these are not uh, necessarily the affordable units, but they are, I think, quite attractive. Now, this is, is an economy housing project that the developer uh, of these units, this is outside of uh, Beijing, uh, built this project in order to develop a, land, a site uh, closer into town. And uh, so the people were moved to the outskirts where this project is. Uh, as you'll see, it's uh, quite attractive. The landscaping is nice. Uh, the units themselves are actually uh, seven-story walk-up buildings. Obviously not something you're going to build in uh, uh, Sydney, but uh, this would be what you would find for economy housing uh, uh, on the outskirts of uh, Beijing or Shanghai. Now let's just look at uh, uh, the next few pictures are pictures of award-winning affordable housing projects. So uh, most of these are by a, uh, a, a division of Trammell Crow Company. Sorry, I don't know exactly where they all are. But uh, so this is a Texas rat building. 
uh, where the parking actually is on the inside. It's a structured parking garage wrapped around by the uh, uh, units themselves. Now, this is a typical courtyard. Uh, well, uh, this actually is not an affordable housing project. The pools would not be this big. <laughs> In Dallas, though, every unit, uh, even the affordable units, they would have central air conditioning and a pool just because that is standard. Um, but uh, so this courtyard is on top of the podium parking garage. And inside you have the courtyard and the units, as you see, that wrap around. Uh, the units, again, are stick-built, which helps to bring the cost down. Other examples of affordable housing projects. Uh, here's one that goes up. Uh, well, it, it looks like it's a six-story building. It's only architectural features on the end. Uh, and uh, uh, it's wrapped by retail on the outside, but there's parking uh, otherwise on the first uh, uh, level. So some more examples. Uh, now this is a project just finished uh, uh, near where I live. Uh, it's in Brighton, which is just outside of Cambridge. Uh, they took a uh, dead shopping center and converted it to this affordable housing project uh, that uh, has a combination of uh, apartment units on this side. And these buildings are eightplex units, which um, personally I don't that doesn't look so good yet because it's brand new, the trees aren't in yet, uh, but it was a very cost-effective uh, way to build the housing. This is what it looks like at the ground level. Uh, this actually has terrific views of Charles River, which would be on the other side. And finally, uh, we have to talk about uh, uh, one of the new kids on the block, and that's We Live Units, which are catering to, uh, especially to millennials, who will take very small units that, that have very generous common spaces. So the small units get the prices down and the common spaces make it more livable. I'm being given the hook, so I would just want to end on some pictures that represent some of the latest in great urban design. Most of you have seen, <clears throat> seen the High Line in New York. This is actually what it looks like. So it's an old railroad track that they were going to tear down and someone came up with a bright idea to make it into a park. Today, the projects that front on the High Line are some of the most valuable real estate in all of New York. I'm from Texas. One of my favorite areas is San Antonio. It has an old public works project, which is this uh, 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 river walk. It's actually below grade, but it creates one of the nicest environments that you'll find in any city in the United States. And finally, one of my favorite housing projects in the world, this is Borneo Sporenberg in Amsterdam. These are old piers that were redeveloped as housing. It won the Green Prize for Urban Design at Harvard several years ago. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, the developer, uh, like uh, the original Crescent Houses in Bath, he created the rules that the builders had to live by. So uh, I, it was platted. Uh, the, build, the units themselves are very narrow, but within that, each builder could build what he wanted to build. So you get a very interesting designs of units. And on the other side, it, uh, it, it uh, sits on the water. 
So I submit this may not be the most affordable units, but it are some of the, they are some of the most attractive. And on that note, thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. And what I might do is invite Rick and also the panellists to come forward, and um, I'll introduce you. The, um, for those uh, who don't know me, I'm Catherine O'Regan. I'm the Executive Director for the City's Leadership Institute. And um, we've heard some great things from Rick this evening, the supply side. I think we've all heard many politicians recently say that's what we have to focus on in terms of housing. There is... Um, obviously a lot deeper issues that um, come to implementing those sorts of things. So that is the challenge. You know, our Premier here has said it's a top priority, um, but you know, the, the devil is always in the detail and, and getting things done. I, you know, I agree that you know, Rick pointed out that you know, Sydney is extremely uh, dense and the economic value sits in the centre and you know, the challenge is to turn that centre and turn it outwards or is there the, the solution lie in actually changing what we think about living and owning a particular house? So all of those questions I'm sure have crossed your mind. So what we thought we would do today is just bring a range of people from different perspectives and I'll start off and ask those people some questions, but then I'll turn it over to you to challenge them a little bit further. So if those, when it comes to questions from the floor, I'll ask you to just come down towards the bottom of the stairs and for those who are enjoying the, the talk tonight online can actually hear you, there'll be a, a mic as well. So with me this evening, and if I start from the far end, um, it's Dr. Kate Harrington, and you know I'm going to call you all things data and insights, but she does work with the New South Wales Department of Planning in their area for demographics, and so you can give some of the evidence and the data that we might call upon. Next to uh, Kate is Sally Betts. Sally Betts is the Mayor of Waverley, but also the President of SS Rock. For those who don't know, SS Rock is the you know, South Sydney Region of Councils, so representing quite a number of councils across the metropolitan area, and they have been very focused on what their housing policy is. Then we come to the male end um, <laughs> of the show, and so Robert is from... Um, his own company which does look at um, strategic housing and I think his background is wonderful because it does traverse local government where he served as a councillor for a long time but also has been a shadow minister for housing in this state. So a nice broad range of perspectives. So what I might do just to kick things off is turn to, to Kate um, and maybe to really start to think about this word of affordability. You know, even when um, we were talking about the hashtag, and for those who need to tweet, it is um, affordable housing. We're going, is it affordable housing or is it housing affordability? Which way round, and do they actually have different meanings? So maybe if we just stick to the word of you know, housing affordability and say, Kate, what does that really mean from a demographic perspective and what sort of insights do you think when we bring some of the big picture down to Sydney, what does it mean for where we live? Thanks and I think you've got to pick up the little, there's a little mic fellow. Yeah. Can everyone hear me if I hold it there? I don't want to shout in ears. Um, so thank you very much for, um, for inviting me to be on the, on the panel today. 
Um, I just will start off by saying that I am from the Housing and Population Insights area of the Department of Planning. I don't set planning policy. I don't know about um, planning guidelines. Um, I've, I've been with the department for nearly a year now and I'm lucky I've got my head around the demographics. Um, so my area looks at um, the past performance of the housing pipeline. How many housing um, projects have been approved, how many are under construction, how many have been completed, what the timelines are for completion, um, what type of dwellings we're approving. So very um, backward looking, if you like, in understanding what has happened in the housing market. So I will say, based on that, we're building an awful lot of apartments and most of the apartments we're building are of two bedrooms. So with that in mind, how are the demographics of Sydney changing over time? So um, I can tell you that it's not an exact science, but in the next 20 years, so to 2036 is the number that we took, um, Sydney's going to grow by around 2 million people. That's just Sydney. Um, and when I say grow, I mean natural increase, which is more births than deaths, as well as what we call uh, movement or migration of people. So that could be people moving from regional New South Wales to Sydney, vice versa, Australians who've been overseas for more than 12 months returning home, um, or temporary migrants who come here to work or to study, as well as uh, a small proportion in that group of, um, of refugees, tiny number. Um, so, so Sydney's growing. Uh, we're currently around 100,000 dwellings short of the demand that our population projections would suggest we need. Um, but more to the point, how Sydney is changing is very much based on the people who are already here. So um, just some very um, fast numbers. Per year between now and 2036, the number of lone person households in Sydney will increase by 2.1% a year. So even though our population is increasing, how we use our housing supply is changing. Um, so if people want to stay in their traditional homes, stay in, in their dwellings, in their locations, we have to look at providing appropriate housing for how those households are changing. Otherwise, we'll end up in a situation that all new families that emerge, so that's as our children grow up and leave home and have their families, they will have to occupy the two-bedroom apartments that we're building because all of our retirees and lone person households will be maintaining their detached properties because they don't have an alternative housing supply to move to. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Kate. I don't know, um, Rick, whether you have some comments because that's a very Sydney perspective. You know, it, do you think that that trend is something that you've observed as well? Well, certainly the biggest concern uh, when we talk about affordable housing, uh, I know a lot of people are against it, think that uh, there are going to be criminals who are going to be occupying this housing. In fact, it's our children and, and it's, it's us as we get older and... Uh, 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 those of us who haven't saved as much as we should. <laughs> um, <clears throat> just uh, definitionally, uh, uh, when we speak about affordability, uh, usually the official rules of the United States are uh, um, uh, housing that somebody who makes 80% of the median income uh, for that metropolitan area, what they could afford, can they find a place to live spending 30% of their income on housing. 
So uh, you're looking at housing that uh, availability that would meet that. Or for sale housing where if you use the same formulas on their mortgage payments um, and uh, a down payment that uh, typically is uh, today around 20%, uh, how many people actually afford to live there? Understand. I'm just thinking, um, Mayor Betts, from the eastern suburbs perspective, it is one of the most densely populated areas. Um, what sort of ways, what sort of observations do you have in the in your area in terms of where is the pain, where are the pain points when it comes to housing affordability in your area, and maybe what are some of the things that the council is doing or thinking of doing to try and address that? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. Um, so Waverley uh, currently is the most densely populated municipality in Australia, uh, but we're only 9.2 square kilometres in size. That's very little. But so Waverley's always had uh, a concern about the affordability, and we've had some programs uh, over the years. And coming back to what Rick was talking about, uh, we're looking at we've always looked at incentives. So rather than um, subsidies, and uh, we can probably talk about incentives and see how they work. We, we believe they do work, and it is the floor space ratio uh, incentive. Ours has worked very well. Basically, it is we will allow uh, developers a 15% increase in floor space on condition that its impact is no greater than a normal whatever they were going to build to and then we get 50% of the net value of that extra floor so or that extra floor space just to give you an example uh, in a normal block of units in Bondi Junction that 15% would equate to two floors so this is a developer who is allowed to build to 38 meters two floors takes it to 44 meters and the return to our council is um, $3 million. Um, now, that used to be, we used to get it in real units, uh, in real homes that we took in perpetuity. Uh, we have 30 to 40 units that we've acquired over the years like that. The planning system now is quite complex and it's resulted in us having to take money uh, for developers rather than physical units. That's a problem to us because then we've got to compete on the, the market, the public market, to buy those affordable units. But we still um, have voluntary planning agreements and 10% of our voluntary planning agreements goes into affordable housing, a bucket that we spend. So um, it, it's the question is, what does the council do? Um, our council has decided that incentives is the way to go because we don't have any land and we don't control things that state and federal governments do like tax incentives and all sorts of things. So the only thing we can do is have a relationship between us and the people actually building that unit to try and uh, increase our affordable housing. Yeah, thank you. And it's... Um Catches a point which um, earlier in the week and um, Professor Pies has been here all week and we've made him work quite a lot throughout the week. <laughs> this is probably his uh, third or fourth lecture today. But um, one of the discussions we've had which sort of touches on what Mayor Betts has said is when you're building these areas or these apartment blocks, you, know, you can put affordable housing within them. But how much affordable housing should you put inside um, 
a block? Is it going to add or take away from the value of the rest of the apartments? You know, is there a tipping point? Is there an ideal number? Or does it actually vary on the area? So I hand that dilemma over to you, Rick. Well, <coughs> there's been a certain amount of research on this. I won't say it's been uh, totally determined, but the general rule of thumb is that uh, you can certainly have 20% of the units in a project that are affordable units, uh, and that will not hurt the value of the market rate units. Now, we're actually looking at a, uh, this is called mixed income housing, and we're looking at a project right now that would be a TOD and dealing with a nonprofit uh, partner who would uh, own and uh, they would actually manage the entire project. They maintain they can actually easily go up to 30% and have places that are as high as 50% uh, that work well. Uh, the key from them uh, is uh, very strict management. So that uh, 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 the, the concern of the market rate units, of course, is that the people who live in the affordable units won't take care of them uh, uh, at the same rate, they'll be noisy, disruptive, they'll throw trash out the windows. In fact, that tends not to happen, uh, especially if you have very strong management. But certainly, I think, uh, uh, going back to the rule of thumb, uh, you can have 20% uh, of affordable, uh, and uh, uh, we've seen many, many projects where that has had uh, the uh, market rate units have not been affected at all. Yeah, I'm just thinking, Rob, from your perspective, because you spend a lot of time bridging the gap between, you know, what not-for-profit um, housing providers are doing and what government may or may not do. Uh, I'm just thinking about that comment about the tipping point. Is there, do you, is that something that the housing providers agree with, or are they taking different models in different places? Yeah, no, there's definitely different models uh, for different uh, different uh, projects. Um, community housing providers will often look for a site where they can um, own the whole site, uh, manage the whole site. Um, having a building that they own where they have affordable housing uh, uh, tenants, um, where those other owners in the building are private owners, there can be some conflict. Um, so in many occasions they like to own a whole building, but that's where that whole building is being managed by the community housing provider. But I, I think this gets back to the point um, it's really important that we understand what we're talking about when we talk about affordable housing and who we're talking about. Uh, you know, on the housing spectrum, we've got you know, supported accommodation, social housing, the old public housing, affordable housing, and, and market housing. Um, affordable housing is housing for working families or working individuals. Um, exception in the community is often that when you use the term affordable housing, you're referring to um, very, very low income public housing, not that there's a problem with them as tenants, but in the minds of the community, they haven't been able to make the distinction. I think at a, at a conversation level and as a um, part of our, our discourse on this issue, it's really important that we are understanding the facts. When we're talking about affordable housing, we're talking about people who are earning up to fifty, sixty, eighty thousand $80,000 a year. Depending on their household, they can even earn up to $100,000 a year if they've got quite a few children. So, you know, People shouldn't be in any way feeling alarmed if that property or that building that they live in has uh, mixed tenure, affordable housing and market housing. Yeah, so it's not just the first-home buyers? 
who have the challenge. I was just kind of thinking even, Kate, some of your reflections earlier. So you know, the, the spectrum of affordability affects all of them. I just don't know, if, Kate, if you had a comment just about in looking at some of the numbers, you know, how are the first-time buyers going at the moment? They're, they're just committed to renting for life? Um, so I don't have um, the, the details mm -hmm. on who is, is purchasing in the market. What I can say is that there's definitely um, a growth, and, and demography not being an exact science, we do have um, within the controls of the planning system something to say about the, the types of families that will be attracted to Sydney. So providing the right type of housing to suit the market needs will mean that certain people are able to find accommodation in Sydney and others won't be able mm. to find accommodation to suit them in Sydney at all ends of the scale. Um, in terms of um, what I would call, or what demographers call natural increase, more births than deaths, the way our population um, will grow in the next 20 years is that we will have a lot more families. So mm. the number mm. of families will increase, um, more couples with children, by about 1.4% a year. So the couple only, 1.7% a year, they're going to be largely um, first home buyers, mm -hmm. um, young couples looking to get into the market, but also empty nesters. So some of the families that are here now will actually have a change in status where their children leave home and they become a couples only household. So there are all sorts of people competing within the same market, yeah. whether it's first home buyers or downsizers, for what we might consider um, medium density or the terrace style accommodation, which might be the entry point into the market. Yeah, okay, okay. Sally, did you want to add a comment to that, by all means? I just wanted to explain, uh, so at Waverley, obviously we deal with the developers to provide this accommodation, but we have a program of who do we give it to. So that accommodation is rented to people, uh, Waverley residents, who are going through some difficult times. And we only, they are only able to rent it for three years, a three-year period, and it's a less than market rate, so it's a reduced rent. And um, we have a housing provider, Bridge Housing, runs those properties for us. And so anybody can apply for that housing. But it's normally, sometimes it's single mums or people that are just really struggling. And that three-year ability to rent a property at a less than market rate normally manages to just help them get back on their feet so that they can go back into the normal housing market after that three-year period. Mm. Sounds good. So what I might do is turn it over to yourself. Uh, if you have people who would like to ask a question. I think Francesca is the person with the mic. Otherwise, I can keep asking these guys all night. So if you have a question, just head down this way. But if people are still contemplating... that, It's a long way, I know. <laughs> Otherwise, you can run up with a mic. Either way, <laughs> you can head up that way. Um, yeah, thank you. I just wanted to ask in terms of there have been solutions suggested in terms of um, getting people to move to regional areas where land and housing is obviously a lot cheaper. That's obviously due to uh, demand being low, due to lack of work opportunities and distance from regional uh, main centres with health facilities, etc. Um, but with the changing face of employment, do you think that is going to become a more viable option 
as many people maybe have trouble finding any kind of employment at all in the future with increasing automation, etc. Um, and therefore the, the reasoning behind the lack of employment opportunities might not be so much an issue and it just might be a matter of uh, developing appropriate level of services and facilities that will satisfy the demands that they otherwise would have to accommodate themselves to in the city. By all means, Rob, over to you. Uh, well, at, at the risk of disagreeing with Barnaby Joyce, uh, I, I don't think the solution to housing affordability in major cities is uh, for an exodus to uh, rural areas or regional areas, as much as they may benefit from people moving to them. Um, the challenges of affordability in Sydney um, were unlikely to be met by a small number of people leaving to find uh, cheaper accommodation outside of Sydney. Um, we've heard some of the statistics of uh, the population growth over the next 20 years. Um, the problem of housing affordability in Sydney is probably going to get worse. Uh, so what we really need to do is to find ways that um, encourage the supply side of housing in Sydney, uh, locate housing close to employment centres, close to transport services, uh, and provide ways that can um, help uh, homeowners get into the market through uh, shared equity programs or similar arrangements. The problem of affordability cannot simply be solved by people moving away from the, from the jobs in the city to areas in the country that don't have jobs. Rick, I don't know if you had an extra comment on that, or, or Kate, I don't mind. Oh, uh, no, I, w I was just going to say that the um, type of population change that we see in Sydney is a very different story in regional mm. New South Wales. And while in Sydney we're going to increase our population across all of our age profile, so we're going to have more workers, more babies, more um, older people. In regional New South Wales, we're not going to see um, a growth in the number of workers. But as the regional populations age, their needs in terms of government services at a community level will change. So there is going to be a need for more aged care workers, health care workers, to relocate to, to regional areas where those type of jobs will be required. I think one of the challenges for government is to understand what the other professions are to enable families to relocate to provide those services um, rather than just say we need 500 aged care workers here. Um, what, 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 what do the, the families of those aged care workers need, schools, other professions, etc.? Rick, I was just thinking from an international perspective, you know, the, the region versus the urbanisation, all cities are urbanising more but the it was an issue in the US election, the difference in who voted where. <laughs> I'm just, just <laughs> well, thinking. <laughs> that's true. I, I'd agree. I, I'm with uh, uh, Robert. I, I, I don't think uh, expecting uh, people to move to uh, less desirable uh, um, areas uh, is going to solve very many uh, uh, of the affordability problems, uh, partly because... Uh, one, they're not going to want to move there. Now, uh, throughout our history, we've seen this movement to the urban fringe uh, where land is cheaper and you can get a lot more house for your money. Uh, but it still depends on having uh, uh, transportation and other urban services uh, uh, to make that desirable. Uh, so that's the natural thing. Yes, it will become more feasible as people do more telecommuting, uh, I just don't expect it to be uh, uh, 
the place that most people want to go. You got to keep in mind the reason you have this a housing affordability problem in Sydney is you got one of the most desirable places on earth. And um, unfortunately, that isn't going to change. Well, fortunately, <laughs> that probably isn't going to change. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Rick, there's this Sydney Melbourne thing going on. I'll talk to you later about it. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's one of the next most desirable. <laughs> I think there was another question. Is that right? Yeah, over to you. If you state your name at the beginning, it might be useful as well. So, yeah, yes, those kinds of requirements, I think... Uh, uh, will help at the margin, but it's not really going to have that huge an impact, I think, on the local affordability. Uh, I will say that we we left China with the, our investment company because they kept raising the threshold of how much equity we had to put into a deal. Uh, at the point where we couldn't get normal leverage, uh, say a 70% mortgage, which uh, is helpful to raise the return on equity, uh, they actually raised it where we had to have 100% equity, and at that point it wasn't economic. And so uh, we left. Uh, on, um, I, I don't think we can have a conversation about housing affordability uh, if we don't also discuss um, tax programs that are in place. And I, I hope that wasn't your question that you were going to ask. But, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on taxation, but I think it's obvious to most people who are worried about um, being able to afford to buy in Sydney so we have a, a system that favours those who are um, using taxpayers' funds to uh, be able to enter the market, uh, pay more for a, a property, um, and then uh, if they sell it and have made a profit, um, to, to actually pay less tax uh, on, that, uh, on that profit that they've made. So we're, we're subsidising them to buy and we're, we're, we're cutting their, tax, uh, their um, tax payments to the government on their income when they sell. And to me, that, that just seems quite quite bizarre and obviously it's having an effect on the demand for uh, for um, for properties and that's making it very difficult for first home buyers as well. Mm -hmm. We'll take it up yeah, towards that. Towards um, hi, I'm Rose. Uh, I'm a student of economics here. Um, not a question to do with negative gearing. <laughs> <laughs> um, as Dr Harrington said, uh, we have an ageing population without changing our n norms of housing. How would policies be put in place that could change people's ideas around moving somewhere smaller as they age, allowing young families to move rather than retiring in their current homes? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of handballing going on. I mean, I do, I do think, um, so if, if you come from the eastern suburbs uh, of Sydney, obviously we have an ageing population that have very big properties and um, they are uh, cash-poor people, but, of course, the, the value of their property is great. So what is one incentive, and we, we certainly found it in Bondi Junction, is that elder, we have some very nice units that are being built in, in Bondi Junction, and that people can actually afford to sell a big home, 
move into Bondi Junction and they move there because all their doctors are there. So if you have, uh, it, it really is, it, it is an incentive because we have so many medical services in Bondi Junction, close to Prince of Wales Hospital, close to public transport. So that's actually the incentive to get, if you are to get people with very big properties to sell those, where are you going to put them? So they need to go into a place as you get older that is a place where they've got the services that they really need very easily. So I suppose we're lucky in Bondi Junction uh, that we have those facilities for, for elder people. But in other places, I'm, I'm not quite sure how you incentivize uh, people to uh, sell a larger house and move into a smaller place. I think one of the things the uh, state government has done is to remove the stamp duty on the purchase of a, of a downsized property. So for those um, people who are elderly and downsizing uh, and then they're buying a new property to move into, I understand that the government's removed the stamp duty from that purchase, which does probably make the, that transition a little bit easier. Well, I'm just going to say that there is a lifestyle choice and as you get older you often may want access, closer access to some of the amenities that you would find in a place like Bondi uh, 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 Junction. I'll say in the United States there's actually a disincentive because at the point you sell your larger house and move into something cheaper, at that point you actually have to pay a, a, cap, a capital gains tax on the difference which you're able to carry forward as long as you keep buying a more expensive house, you don't pay any tax. The second <laughs> you buy a cheaper house, uh, you get uh, tax. So uh, programs that look yeah. at the taxation, I think, are quite important. As long as you don't end up, I think something, Kate, you and I were talking about is you have affordable housing, but you also need affordable communities. No point being in that beautiful house if you can't afford the coffee. So you're kind of stuck. <laughs> kind of stuck. I think there was a gentleman right at the back, and then we can come down to the front. I, um, my name's Michael. I, I've been a property developer in Sydney for the last 15 years and for the last seven years we've specialised 100% uh, of our efforts in the affordable housing space and whilst we appreciate that there's a consensus across the community, local government, state government, federal government, that there's a need for affordable housing, um, it's been our experience um, that when we submit a proposal for an affordable housing development, we have ex extreme resistance um, from local governments and also from the community. Um, typically, we receive 50% uh, plus of the local community objecting to our proposals, um, even though they're providing much needed uh, affordable housing for their own children and for themselves in some instances. Um, and those projects have been historically approved um, even though they haven't been supported by council or local community. So mm. unfortunately, we've had to go through the Land Environment Court to have those approved, which slows down the actual supply of affordable housing and also dramatically increases the cost. It also creates a barrier for other developers getting into the space because it increases the risk of the supply. Um, further to that, we've found that a lot of local government planning instruments are written in such a fashion to prohibit the supply of affordable housing and also innovative um, solutions to affordable housing. Um, one example is a project that we're working on at the moment, whereas if we actually build it as an affordable housing project, which we are proposing to build 100% of that development as affordable housing, the result would be uh, dwellings 
with a floor area of between 150 and 300 square metres, which is not really providing affordable housing. What we've actually proposed is a diverse uh, split of the unit sizes between 35 square metres and about 100 square metres to create affordable housing. So yeah. I think there's a big disconnect there uh, somewhere. Well, because yeah, I, sorry. Long question, so just keeping it, keeping it tight. So maybe, I think, Rob, you were keen to answer. There was something around getting the community on board just as much as getting the right product on the market. Yeah, I, I think it goes to the, one of the points that I made a bit earlier uh, about how important it is uh, when we have this, this discussion at the public level that we're clear about what affordable housing is. I think the government has a very big responsibility, as do councils, to make sure that uh, when applications are uh, sent out um, notifying about affordable housing, when we're talking about affordable housing, we identify why there's a need for affordable housing and, the, and who will be the beneficiaries of that affordable housing. Um, if, if, you were say to, if you were to say to the objectors um, who are objecting to your application that a fair proportion of the people who, uh, who could qualify to live there were teachers or nurses uh, or were the baristas at their local coffee shop, they might not be so resistant to, uh, to that project being approved. So I think it's very important that we tell the story about affordable housing, that we're clear in our public discourse about what affordable housing is. On the issue of, of objections, I, I know exactly what you mean. When I've seen applications for affordable housing um, and, and similar mm -hmm. projects in the same neighbourhood that don't have affordable housing, the number of objections for affordable housing triple or quadruple, um, and it's really a mindset of a community who, are, who don't really understand what affordable housing is. Um, onto the issue of, of the planning controls, um, the affordable rental housing step, the state government planning instrument to try and encourage affordable housing, I don't think is a very effective tool at all. Um, particularly for, uh, so if you're a situation where you're doing 100% affordable housing, I'm assuming you're going to hold on to all of those units. Um, but for a developer who's trying to include affordable housing in a project and, and using the, the state planning provisions, um, they have to make 50% of that development affordable housing. And that makes getting finance for that project very difficult. It actually is a disincentive to, to include affordable mm -hmm. housing. Um, so I think we have to look at the state planning controls. Mm -hmm. We have to look at, at um, broadening people's understanding of what affordable housing is so that the, the resistance and the, the confusion about it is probably going to be diminished. I know that, um, Mayor Betts, you've dealt with many objections for everything from <laughs> housing onwards. I don't know if you have a comment, but how do you deal with some of those objections if you know you want to bring to the market certain social economic outcomes, yet the resistance is there? Yeah, I mean, I think that we have a, a very sad example in Waverley. Uh, the Benevolence Society uh, had a, a, a block and it was a very large piece of land that they had had for many, many years and tried to develop it. And we did um, go quite far down the, the road of giving uh, a certain amount of height because we knew the kind of accommodation that was going to be there. We had a lot of objections. Uh, the building did get approved in the Land and Environment Court in, at that stage, but they found it really very, very difficult in the end, because of all the complex and, and all the ob objections we've got. So, so they then sold their building to a normal developer, got, of course, because of land approved in the land environment, they got all the controls that we had negotiated, 
because it was affordable. And now we have a very, very expensive, beautiful block of units uh, with no affordable housing mm -hmm. in that block at all. Mm -hmm. So it, it is a definitely a problem that um, some community, uh, the, the complaints are such that makes it very difficult for developers and the council, mm -hmm. and the result is a really bad one socially, I think, for the whole area. Okay. And it does happen, I, I understand that. Mm -hmm. Question over here. Thanks. Uh, first of all, welcome, Rick. Uh, and uh, I'm Rick Graff from Bill Berger Group. Uh, and we've spent a long time getting ourselves into this problem in Sydney. It's not something that's happened overnight. Uh, and it's a multifaceted problem. And it's uh, the most affordable locations for providing housing are in the very far west where people would be 50 or 60 kilometres from the quality jobs and, and the majority of jobs which are heavily biased in the east. Um, we've, we've got to get ourselves a whole series of tools because as Robert said really most of the tools that we've got at the moment uh, don't work well to stimulate the provision of affordable housing. So we need uh, supply side incentives, we need uh, support on, uh, on the demand side. But uh, in terms of the planning system, uh, your two-week approvals in, uh, in Texas, uh, we don't have that either. But, uh, that was two hours. Two hours, two hours. <laughs> we dream of we, two weeks. <laughs> we, we, we have a, a particularly pressing problem at the moment where our demand is growing rapidly and that's pushing our costs up even higher. Uh, but our delivery of apartments... We've got a seasonal peak, a momentary peak at the moment where we're going to exceed 30,000 completions this year. But our historical requirements of uh, needing to get between 25 and 35,000 a year, uh, uh, we've been delivering 13 to 15,000 a year. And that uh, backlog that uh, Kate was referring to is part of the problem that's pushing us up higher. Uh, how do we move on all of these fronts at once uh, getting approvals, you know, we've formed the Greater Sydney Commission and we're amalgamating councils, but that's had a, a, a negative impact in the short term because major projects are sitting still waiting for that to flow through. So the six months to December, we've actually had a 36% fall in building in uh, residential apartment approvals and that's going to start showing itself as a drop in supply in 18 months' time. You'd like to take that one on? Is it... Has there been a, a drop in the last little while in terms of... Or you don't know the housing numbers that we do? I, well, yeah. I didn't bring the housing numbers with me, and trust me, I can't remember them. Um, but the, the, some, <laughs> they're, they're, they're certainly published on our website, and we certainly do take um, year-to-date mm. numbers. So it's, mm. we don't necessarily look at the month. We, we do seasonally adjust. Mm. Um, but one of the the things that we are doing in the department that, that I do know about, even though I'm, I'm not a planner, um, is that we are trying to make um, more um, residential developments, um, complying developments. So um, medium density, granny flats, those type of um, development applications that contribute to housing supply um, will um, see an increase um, in the speed at which they're approved by council. And we're also working on a better practice guide to help councils with their DA assessment processes. But in terms of apartments, particularly um, the very high density apartments, 
I think that we're never going to get to a, a position where they can be complying development because um, they obviously do need community consultation um, and, and um, more consultation in the, in the process generally. Would you agree, Rick? Is a nod from Rick. <laughs> I, I think you, you, what you need is you need um, a, a, transfer, a, a transparent process. So if it means that every time you want to get a little bit extra in order to build affordable housing, you've got to go through a whole planning proposal, well, that takes two years. So you can just forget that. So, but um, I'm just suggesting that in, in our particular case, any developer who wants to build can just go and read our LEP and they know categorically that there is an ability to get a 15% extra floor space. They know exactly what it will cost them. So they have the incentive and they can read that from the beginning. Now they can either do that or not. They can build to the height that is in the control and as I said, as long as there's not any additional <coughs> impact and normally if you're building a building that's uh, 20 metres to 38 metres, the difference of impact between 38 metres and 44 is, is negligible because the impact's going to be on the 38 metres in the first place. But as long as it's transparent, then you're going to get in developers who look at it and say, I can do this, there's profit for me. Because with some of our new housing targets that we're talking about, you've got this viability component. So the incentive will be, you know, uh, to have affordable housing on condition that it's viable. What's viable? I mean, I understand in the UK when they mandated, uh, in London when they mandated affordable housing, the stocking increased. When they <coughs> brought a viability clause in that said, you know, you, you must produce this as long as it's viable, the increase in stock just died completely because developers of course, didn't think it was viable. So <laughs> it's just got to be absolutely clear. There's got to be something in it for the people who are building it, be the developer or uh, whoever you, is going to do it, and a, 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 an advantage for the community, which will be in affordable housing. But it's got to be clear that everybody understands it. Robert, did you want to add a comment there? I, I think one of the, the things we can look forward to, um, particularly through the... Um, Greater Sydney Commission uh, is that they are talking about targets mm. for affordable housing mm. um, uh, through inclusionary zoning, uh, and, and I think this is a very important way and, and a very a, a simple way of increasing the supply of affordable housing. We recognise that we need more supply, and if we recognise we need more supply, then we need to change the zonings. If we're going to change the zonings, then the additional capacity that that land has. It's entirely reasonable, in my opinion, and I think many people's opinion, that the bonus that that upzoning generates is shared. The developer gets a bit, or the landowner gets a bit, uh, but so too does the community housing providers or the affordable housing sector. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a way of providing uh, affordable housing, a substantial increase in affordable housing, that no one is actually paying for. We are using uh, extra density uh, and sharing some of that, ex that benefit to, to deliver the affordable housing. And I think if the Commission can deliver on that uh, and make those, those increases and the mandated minimum uh, affordable housing at a good level, this will probably be one of the keys to delivering more affordable housing in the short to medium term. Mm. What we'll do, I am conscious of time, so I think we have one more. Is that if you, 
as long as the questions are short and the answers are short, then, uh, and I'm sure that the panellists are around if they have been able to get to you all. Hi, just a quick question for me, Abetz. With the Benevolent Society project, was there anything in the power of the council to have overridden the, the, the oppositions from the residents in the interest of uh, the goodwill for the, the entire community? Um, I, I think we um, fell over backwards. We spent a year uh, trying to negotiate, of course, with the developer to move setbacks because obviously there, there was an impact on the community, absolutely. But I think that what we did is we did seriously work with the developer, with the Benevolent Society, to um, try and come to a, a good solution. Uh, we thought we had come to that solution. In the end, Benevolent Society just felt that it, it, it didn't work up in the end because we had probably, um, we'd probably moved the controls for them a little bit too far. And, and that's what we were doing to try and keep everybody happy. We thought we had everybody happy, but they didn't. So I, it, it's very complex how you keep all your residents happy when they're having a, a fairly large development built next to them, even if it's for a good cause. Thank you. So what we might do is I'll just invite Professor Balikaj to come up. But while he's doing that, just thank the panellists and thank you for your questions. I'm glad the Greater Sydney Commission was mentioned. As you may know, I'm on it. Uh, there's a gorilla in the room. Most of our schools are over capacity. Uh, in the West, dirt roads don't seem to do. Uh, we don't have enough sewage or water lines. So clearly, most of the capacity has to come where building already is. And those of you who live there don't want it. So that's a big problem. But even those of you who want it, the schools are already overcrowded. You know, the parks aren't there. So you don't just build houses, you build communities. And that's the mantra of the commission. We're not going to prove a house anymore or a building. We're going to prove a community with the school, with the transportation, with the bus. We can't create a new mess to solve an old problem. So, Rick, having created a mess, <laughs> please accept this from us. Uh, this is from the bank, the mutual bank. That, um, and, and these are for the airplane ride. It says addictive. Uh, thank you very much, Rick, for all you've done this week. Thank you. And uh, we're coming to Harvard for the next lesson. Okay. <laughs> Thank all of you for coming. Be champions for this in every way you can. Get on Twitter. Uh, apparently, politicians are now listening to Twitter. I can't think why. Uh, be in your neighborhood and talk to the people in the neighborhood about the kind of development you want in the neighborhood. Don't let anybody force something on you, but make sure you do your share. Because if you don't do your share, it's going to pop out somewhere else. We're all in this together. Uh, we're all the Greater Sydney Commission. Thank you. Good night.